But I would like to ignore the global north. We know what they're all about. We know that they're resistant to change. But what about us in the global south? We are also resistant to change. We are also, we have had absolutely no soul searching amongst us because we have been so dependent. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain, the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. COP26. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week's episode of Trumanitarian is with Kim Rees Khan and Mabala Nialuve. Regular listeners may be familiar with Mabala, who also appeared in episode 2, where we discussed racism and colonialism in aid. You can find that episode in our feed under the title, Who Many Book. Tim Rees and Mabala are both passionate about improving the world. They come from South Asia and East Africa, respectively, and have both worked in the aid industry. We talk about the difficult choices you have to make when there's a disconnect between the cause you serve and the institutions you work in. It's a personal and nuanced discussion, and I would like to thank both Tim Ries and Mabala for coming on the show and giving such excellent answers to my questions. Next week's episode will take up exactly the same issue, how do we square the circle of the individual and the institution, but from a slightly different perspective. What do you do? when you work in the upper echelons in one of the largest humanitarian agencies in the world and try to balance your inner humanitarian realist with your humanitarian heart. But for now, over to Marvala and Temris. Enjoy the conversation. Temris Khan and Marvala Nia welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Rees, uh, you're coming in from uh, Karachi in Pakistan today. And I think uh, it's, been, it's been very depressing uh, over the past uh, weeks and months to, to hear the, the news about the flooding in, in Pakistan. How, how are things now? Uh, things are not very good. Uh, we are still almost 33% uh, underwater, 33% of the whole country. And there are still as many millions of people displaced uh, at the moment. Uh, it's been almost a month, and um, most areas are still underwater. Relief isn't getting through. Uh, the government doesn't seem to be doing anything. There are a lot of calls for humanitarian aid internationally. We're waiting for that to come in. Um, a lot of it has not come in as yet. A lot has been pledged. But on the ground, the situation from what we're hearing and seeing is just absolutely terrible. Uh, people are dying. They're dying of waterborne diseases now, malnutrition, hunger. They have no shelter and winter is coming. So that's even more of a problem. Children are the worst hit uh, because they're the most vulnerable and susceptible. Women as well. It's just an overall terrible situation. And it's it's one of those uh, cases where the humanitarian industry really, really hasn't been able to do much, unfortunately. Yeah, I've been trying to follow the situation, but but I haven't found that much news about it, to be honest with you. And for me, what was interesting was to contrast it to 2010 when I was in Pakistan for the flooding that year, which were also very large, but this is even bigger. And at least back then, there was a lot of international attention on the flooding. I, how, how do you see those two crises 
Very different. I mean, I also recall the 2010, 2011 floods and, and, and they were very bad. But for some reason, the system kicked in. It wasn't a perfect response. There were a lot of problems there as well. But, you know, civil society, international humanitarian sector, our own people, everybody somehow managed to do something or the other. Um, it was also of a lesser scale, but nevertheless, fairly large. It, it covered many provinces as well from north to south. This time around, I think we were a caught completely unawares. And then the rains just came out of nowhere. So just the extent of what we're seeing is something that really threw us off. So I completely sympathize with the fact that we don't have the ability or the capacity to, to address this ourselves. We desperately need international support, but also contradictory is why we're not making enough noise ourselves this time around, given climate change is such a huge global topic. I think we're just being overshadowed a lot by the political um, scenario of the country, which has been very unstable for the last couple of years. Uh, and that's taking precedence, unfortunately, uh, unnecessary precedence. Yeah, clearly there's a, there's a lot of competition for attention these days. And I think we're feeling the ripple effects of Ukraine, not just in terms of the impact on the food pipeline, but also in terms of just how much resources and attention are sucked into that terrible crisis also. I wanted to ask about Pakistan and what you see over these 10 years, because what we will try to do today is contrast the two perspectives of, of you, Tamriz, and, and of Mabala. You have written a number of blog posts about how you, you after 30 years in the, in the aid industry, feels like aid left you rather than you leaving aid. So in other words, reflecting back on, on 30 years of experience in the industry. And Mabala, you uh, have, have uh, seven years ago begun working in aid in, in different kinds. And, and I wanted to hear what two female aid workers from the Global South, from South Asia and from East and Southern Africa, what your perspectives are on the industry we work in. Maybe a good way to begin this would be, uh, Temris, maybe walk us through the argument you put forward in your Aid Left Me blog post. Sure. Um, I I mean, that's a very, very personal blog post that I wrote on, on my personal blog site. And basically, after spending so many decades in an industry that I joined uh, with so much passion, Um, and it was rare in Pakistan in those days. That industry was still fledgling. We didn't have many international organizations operating in the country. Uh, most of them were offshoots of the Afghan refugee crisis uh, in the 1980s that we experienced. Um, but the entire development sector as we know it today was still getting off the ground in Pakistan, particularly at the community and grassroots level. And I was very fortunate to be able to start my career at, at that time you know, to see it build up and off the ground. But 30 years later, almost 30 years later, after working in the sector in many roles, so I was a practitioner, I was a field worker, I was a researcher, an evaluator, a policy advisor. Um, I just realized that everything that I had learned, and I've learned a tremendous amount, don't get me long, wrong, it's been amazing. Um, I wouldn't be what I am and where I am today if I hadn't experienced all that. But what I found frustrating was that nothing had changed in my country uh, since the day I started uh, working in this sector. Not the language, not the terminology, not the approach, not the um, 
you know, the outputs that we call in this industry, nothing. It was all exactly the same. And you think in three decades, we move somewhere, right? And that was very frustrating to me. Um, to top it all, I also felt that the industry was very exclusive. Um, and I was, again, fortunate that I was part of that exclusive set. And by exclusive, I mean that it was highly international donor-led. So it was not Pakistan-led at all. And so I think subconsciously for many years, one, I know I denied that reality. It was just how it was. And it seemed that that's how it was meant to be. There was no questioning. But gradually, as you know, the world changed, and maybe not the industry, you did start to question, particularly when you saw your own country sort of get worse and worse and worse over time. So eventually, I decided this is not for me anymore. You know, I can't use that same language anymore. I can't be subservient to an approach that I can't identify with. Um, and I certainly can't communicate in the way that, you know, the sector wants me to communicate with my own people. So eventually, after many, towards the end of my career, I would say the last few years, um, when I actually did experience head-on conflict with a lot of the clients that I worked with, um, I decided it was time to just, you know, leave this behind. And so I did. And I was fortunate that I could, because a lot of people can't, because, you know, they have, I mean, I just had a different situation, so I could. And 30 years is a really long time anyway. Know, to, to move on. So I did leave and I am now focusing my attention on what not to do in development and moving away from the conventional um, you know, approaches that people tend to still perpetuate and use. And of course, the entire idea of white saviorism and uh, racism, which it's, it's bizarre. I, I experienced racism so many times subtly throughout my career, but I never picked up on it. Never. It's only now that I'm realizing I look back because of the conversations that are happening and, you know, I just, a memory clicks. And I think I've mentioned a lot of those little sort of sound bites in my blog about, you know, personal experiences over the years that I just look back and think on, oh my God, how did I stay quiet? How did I not react to that? So it, it was, it was very fascinating. So yeah, that's, that's what the blog series is about. So Mabla, tell us a bit about about your experience, where where you're coming from, and how uh, what Tim Reese has said now and written in her blog post, how that resonates with you. My my first degree is in public affairs and human rights. Um, after I did that, I was working in Uganda with local organizations and human rights organizations. Um, kind of felt that NGOs were struggling a bit in Uganda. First of all, there's so many of them, um, and I just think the dependency on money from the outside. Um, can cripple sometimes what they can do. So I kind of left the the NGO sector to go into what I thought would be a bit more impactful um, and began working in design thinking. So working for a design firm that was helping other international organizations and local ones just design better projects that were based on, on research on the ground. Um, and that was looking to just have more impactful projects, right? And so did that for a while, uh, but also found that a lot of what was happening in the development space in, in Africa specifically was very Western driven. And I also felt that, you know, stuff has to be more, more localized. And what does that mean? So kind of went back to school, just finished my, my master's in development studies and gender, 
And the point of that was to just to understand where this development comes from and just understanding how it's structured theoretically and how that can be applied to creating more impactful change in Africa, for example. Um, back to Temrez's blog, I think what I found really interesting and a bit depressing actually was how nothing has changed. <laughs> and so for me, again, I really, I really think hard on that because I'm like, if, if you're speaking and you've been working in this sector for quite a long time and you're reflecting back now about how not much has changed. And I have also not worked as much as you, but in just my, my small amount of time and thinking of moving forward, I think the question is, is how do we bring change, for example? And for me, particularly when you mentioned the whole white, savior, uh, white saviorism and just how the West is involved, I think what was really striking for me during my course, so I went to um, a school that was is focused on African and Oriental studies. Um, excuse the Oriental, I don't think that word should be used, but anyways. Um, and it was quite fascinating to see how in that program where a lot of the curriculum would be based on Africa, I'd say maybe less than 10% were Africans. That to me was very sad already. The people who were in that room doing this degree, I was the minority, right? When the continent was gonna be heavily discussed. So for me, that already was a bit like, okay, so who will be working in this sector, right? So I'd like to pick up on something you said, Marvala. You say nothing has changed. I can see one change. So when you, you say to us, I didn't realize the racism I, were, I was subjected to. It's, it's light bulb moments decades later that certainly replace it in my head. Whereas I think if I listen to you, Marvala, the and, and your generation, I mean, you, there's a heavy discussion about colonialism and decolonizing and racism. So for me, the, the question to both of you is, how does it make a difference that today this is something we talk about? This is part of the discourse. Well, I think to begin with, this has always been part of the discourse. I think even in the 1990s, when I started off in my career, and majority of the theorists and the authors and the development practitioners that we had to read, because my initial degree was also in development studies and, and as my master's as well, were all white. And yes, nobody questioned that. And that became the norm for how the industry and the sector was designed. But I know in the background, like in, when I was at university, I went to university in Canada, and we know that the indigenous population in Canada and the indigenous issues there are very strong. And I felt those even way back then, right? I mean, now you hear it louder, but they were always there. The difference was, I think, nobody was listening to it, right? And even if you were, the powers that be were too strong, so they never allowed that to come ahead. But the voices were always there. I've also argued about decolonization when I write about it, is that voices uh, uh, regarding decolonization of, of any sector, decolonization of post-colonial societies as a whole even, has been around since the 1970s. The African, Latin American, Asian scholars have written about it. So we have a lot of literature and scholarship. We've got a lot of people who've been in the human rights and the freedom rights movements in many countries of the global south. It's just that 
nobody paid attention or rather a specific group did not pay attention and we allowed that specific group to maintain power and control. So I, I, I understand that you see the change in the sense that now this is all very much in the open and we're all talking about it openly. And I think that's something Mabala's generation has an advantage to and we didn't. But I also feel that this issue goes so deep into our psyches that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I think it'll take many decades more to unpack it, to bring it out, and to actually see this in action in how we we work in the world, how our society uh, is structured in different parts of the world, etc. So yeah, it's it's a change, but it's also not a change in a way. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. I think, and for me, who's now like I'm job hunting, so who's now going to be thinking to get back into the sector? I think it's been great to be in the academic space and to have all these discussions. You know, decolonization. What does that mean? How does that look? But again, to your point, I'm also wary about how that translates in actual practice, right, with organizations. And if they're actually willing to have these discussions and, and change how they operate. And for me, what kind of scares me a bit is it just seems like such a big system that how do you even uh, bring that to the change makers? Um, and for me, I'm thinking maybe you kind of have to like work outside the system. And how do you work outside the system? And so that's kind of what I grapple with because... Again, it's such it's such a strong establishment that has been in existence for so long. And so, yeah, it's great having these discussions, but how do you practically bring them to be accepted? And I think it kind of has to be done on the outside. I kind of think people have to work on the outside. Is that that outside that you have stepped into, Timbris? Is, is that what you do? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And believe me, it's been two years and I'm still trying to figure out exactly, you know, what the outside is. Um, but I completely agree. This is exactly where I would want to be. I don't want to step back into that world anymore. And I'll just give you an example of, of how dangerous that world is. So, you know, decolonization and Mabala, you said localization, right? So these are the two big buzzwords that are going around the sector now. And everybody thinks this is, this is it, right? We've discovered how to fix the system through decolonization and localization without really understanding what they mean or whether or not they're even relevant. And I hear now NGOs in Pakistan, which is far removed from this discussion, by the way, you know, Africa is very much into it, but South Asia is still, we're not there yet, but I still see now a lot of NGOs using these words. And these are NGOs that are funded by donors. And donors want these words used because it makes them look good. It makes them see as if, no, we're really trying hard to change and to listen. And so it's hijacking these NGOs in Pakistan who don't understand what decolonization and localization mean. And even if they do, they interpret it differently. But nobody's giving them the opportunity to express it that way because they are still tied to donors. So, I mean, even these approaches really end up hijacking the actual process, right? So, which is why, again, being in it is very dangerous. And so, yes, I've stepped back from it completely. So I can openly say that I don't agree with these two terms. But then you need more. But I I do know that it can sort of, uh, people will resist it. And so uh, how long can you manage that resistance and continue to stay out that outside that space? I think that will judge how many people then choose to come outside that space and then really give it the 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 effort it needs. 
Yeah, and Tamaris, as you as you were speaking, I was just thinking about this again, back to this localization and how that's looking in Africa as well. I think there's been a transition now to have international organizations that are in Africa have local staff, right? That's a big move. And so there's this move to to show that this is a, you know, we're putting the Africans now at the forefront of, of you know, what, of practice and development, but at the same time, where's the power, right? So who's funding these projects? So again, to your point, just adding to your point, it's like, yeah, so we, we put this picture of, no, but we're hiring local. Locals now have, have power and organization. But then the money is still coming from somewhere else and that money is still dictating what kind of work is being done. And again, so it's just this cycle of like, oh yeah, there's change, but really where's the power? And for me, it's, a, it's about that power, like, because the power dictates what work is done. So, so I think my first question to both of you is, what is the language then that we should use? How do you avoid this co-opting of terms that we've seen with decolonizing and, and localizing? So I have recently um, co-written, co-authored an article um, on terminology that's used in global development and global health. And that involves, you know, developed versus developing, north versus south, uh, east versus west, rich versus poor. And that's all this terminology, this very condescending terminology that the sector has, has perpetuated in English, mind you, in just one language, not even French or Spanish, you know, the other colonial languages, but just in English. And I think the conclusion that we came to in that article is that you need to let everybody select their own form of expression. How would you like, how would they like themselves to be represented in the world and amongst their own people, right? We don't give that opportunity as well. And that requires a lot of, of discussion. You know, you can't come up with an answer or a solution for something that is so ingrained in you know, just a year or two even. This is an ongoing process that we've just sort of begun. But I think the soul searching, there's a lot of soul searching that we need to do amongst ourselves, particularly in the global south. And that has been the crux of my, I think, mission, is that I would like to ignore the global north. We know what they're all about. We know that they're resistant to change. But what about us in the global south? We are also resistant to change. We are also, we have had absolutely no soul searching amongst us because we have been so dependent on support from outside, guidance from outside. Um, you know, our entire, look at our countries. They, they were born out of the embers of, you know, somebody else's control. So I feel that there needs to be first a lot of soul searching amongst the global south itself which is no less racist, mind you, between each other, which is no less unequal amongst each other. Because even in the global south, we've got variations. You know, not every country is poor. Look at the regional differences that we have. South Asia as a region itself, there are so many differences, cultural, social, economic, historical, even though we all went through the same history, right? So I think we haven't dug deep amongst ourselves first. And I think once we do that, then we can talk about, you know, so what are the other alternatives that we have? What are the other options that we have? Yeah, I was, I just think away from language. I, I don't really focus on that because I think that can be quite divisive and it's what we've been using so far and it's not really working. I go back to also like, yeah, what do we actually want to fix? Do we even know what we want to change and fix ourselves? I think everything has been so prescribed for so long is that we just go along with things. 
And this was kind of my issue working at these local NGOs. It was just like, oh, what can we find funding for? As opposed to like, what can we actually change? What do you actually want to change in our, in our communities and organizations? It was more like, oh, there's a proposal for this, so we'll just apply for that. Even though it's not really an issue that's you know, pertinent or, or that, what's the word, that immediate, right? And so again, I think that whole cycle has to change. We have to stop looking to this money to fix and actually think, what do we want for ourselves? What, what do we want to change? How does it work outside the system? I don't, I don't know how it works outside the system, to be honest. I think that's something I'm still, I'm still thinking about. Um, I think for, for one, one thing I've always been thinking about is just restructuring, and this is an old idea, is this whole NGO model. I've discussed it so many times, this reliance on, on funding. I think that has to switch. For example, again, when I left Uganda, I think what made me really sad and even working back there is just seeing the number of placards, I've said this so many times, of NGOs all doing the same thing. And for example, why, why can't that model change? Why can't we actually be, you know, for example, I feel like a human rights organization that um, received funding for, for their projects. And I was thinking, why can't that organization start training um, its staff in human rights? You know, why couldn't they have like a, like a module that taught basic human rights for other community workers. So I think for me, it's that. It's, it's change that is self-sufficient, but can still bring you know, income into the, into, the, into the community. So what I hear you saying, Marvela, is we need a new business model. We need new money and a different way of working. Mm-hmm. But Tamaris, at the same time, I hear you saying, I don't want to have the agenda set by the global north. I, in a sense, want to ignore them and work with the improvements we can make where I am. Now, if you if you do that, don't you run the risk of ignoring where the power is, where the money is, and how can you then influence them? I think that's exactly what we need to do. Uh, we do need to ignore the power. Um, we do need to, I guess, push them away and keep them at arm's length. And I feel it. a lot of people think that sounds very drastic and unrealistic. But in my opinion, I think that's exactly what we need to do because we've tried to work with this system for so long. And every single time it has taken advantage of us and it's disappointed us. So why can't we just break away and develop our own system? And once we do that, I think we'll be on more equal footing where we can then talk to the northern powers as a southern power about how it is we do what we want to do. And we both need to contribute. It's not, I mean, the equality will come when both of us contribute to the same tune. Right now, because one is majority contributor, that's why the other one is under them. So for me, I think the radical way out, uh, and it can only be radical, that's my, that's my firm belief, is that we do need to push them away from us. We do need in the short term to find a way to perhaps support ourselves until we get to that position where we can stand up on our own two feet. And I think that is possible. There are a lot of ways, alternate ways of funding um, that our own countries can generate, but we, because of our own internal you know, political disagreements, don't want to do that. You know, So there's a lot of corruption, a lot of nepotism. We don't collect enough taxes, we misuse our own resources, we, our wealth distribution is extremely unequal you know, within our own country. So why don't we work on doing that um, and then build our own internal strength and then we can talk to the others uh, in the global north, the powers that be.
I agree. And I think I was saying this before, like changing the model. I give the example of the human rights organization, like not relying on that power as well. I think it's interesting though, when I think of how this will play out and how it's done, I think it really has to be an independent effort because now I just think of, of the, the countries in Africa which do benefit from aid, the governments that love this aid. And so there's a lot of push to have that money still coming in. And so again, for me, as an actor who wants to change that, I'm just realizing how it's going to be, it's going to be hard because who, who, who will you work with and who will support you? Um, because again, aid is so, so lucrative and people like receiving it. So both of you are arguing that um, a radical independent position some reason outside the system, Mabla saying, you know, I see the NGO getting sucked into this business model. So so you want quite a radical shift. So so then my next question is two things, I think. That means that quite a lot of the institutions we currently have working in the space needs a radical transformation and probably initially a reduction in size because a lot of the resources come from the outside. Is So that's a price worth paying is what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, I know on the face of it, it sounds very callous because you're talking about people who built a career in this sector, suddenly, you know, just seeing themselves redundant. Um, so, yes, absolutely. It's it's going to have a lot of uh, risk in, in taking a radical position, but then that's what does happen when you choose a radical position. But I have a feeling that's not going to happen. I mean, I'm just wishfully thinking here about all these different options. Because I think right now, one trend that you see, particularly in a lot of international NGOs, is this whole idea of let's reposition ourselves, let's reimagine ourselves, you know, let's find a different way of working. And I think all that is a desperate attempt for everybody to stay relevant. And I don't think that's just in the global north. I think that's in the global south as well. There are waves of change coming. The sources of funding for us are drying up in a lot of places as well including in humanitarian aid. And we are realizing that we have to sing to a different tune as well. The powers, the global power structure is changing. So we are also having to adapt. But the whole thing about adaption is that you, you know, is that the foundation remains the same. You're just adapting to the foundation shifting around. And I'm saying, let's change the foundation altogether. Let's just break it down. And let's see if we need to even rebuild it. Because then another big mantra is, you know, let's build back better, according to the World Bank. But I mean, do you actually need to build something back? What if there's another way out? And honestly, we won't know unless we don't try. And I don't think we're trying because we're scared of trying, which is a, which is a natural instinct. But I really think we need to get ourselves out of this comfort zone where we need to constantly say, oh, but the money is coming from there. Without that, we can't even think about change. I think we need to get our, our minds out of that thought uh, process as well and that way of thinking. Only then will we be able to perhaps think about other ways of, of doing things. And if I could just maybe interject um, another point in there, which I feel strongly about, and it is this, that even... Amongst ourselves, we will find that there will be a lot of disagreements. You know, just because, for instance, we're South Asians doesn't mean we all agree with each other, right? We are different countries with different histories and different cultures and different backgrounds. Um, there's a lot of historical baggage that we carry. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, 
people who are from Africa will work seamlessly with people from Latin America or Asia or vice versa, right? I think those are barriers and obstacles that we have to accept because they are there, they are historical, but we have to work through them. And my point is, let's work through these barriers first before thinking about how do we as a collective work against the barrier with the North, which is why I constantly go back to saying, forget the North. Let's focus on ourselves. That's where we'll be able to actually find some sort of an alternate solution. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there are gaps between us as countries of the global south as well. And we need to also identify those barriers and those gaps and those perhaps those animosities and work our way through them. Yeah, I think a few things uh, stood out for me, Tamriz, when you were speaking. And I think that's the, the adaptation because, yeah, you're right. That's happening a lot, right? Um, yeah, funding has been cut all across Africa as well. So there has to be a new way of, of working and people are thinking about that. But again, it's still within this system, right? And the other word was radical. And that's something I've always been thinking about as well. I'm like, for the right change to come about, it does have to be completely radical. And, and people are scared to be radical. And that's part of the reason why we just get comfortable. And I think for me, as I've been thinking about how we change things in this sector, I think one thing I've realized, which you kind of touched upon when you were saying we have even amongst ourselves, we don't always agree. I think what I've always, what I've also learned is that not everybody has the same desire, you know, for this kind of change to happen. The people who are very happy with the system, how it works, even from the global south, right? Who are benefiting and are very happy in those roles, roles that they play and how they benefit from it. And so for me, I think one thing personally I'm learning or will be trying to learn is to actually find people your tribe who think like you and who want to do this and to realize not everybody's going to be on board that same way. Forget cultural differences, just people in the sector who still want to benefit from the sector and who still want it to exist. There's that as well. And so I think for me, it's again, stepping out and finding people who, who think the same and actually want this kind of change to happen, but being realistic that not everybody is, thinks like that. So, so a lot of what you have said around the need for a new business model and how we need a radical shift and, and change there, even if it means that we we have a setback in terms of, of people losing their jobs and maybe some institutions going out of business that currently exist. For me, that a lot of that resonates with me. I, I, I can somehow feel comfortable with that. Where I am less clear is that if we take, for example, where we started this conversation, the flooding in 2010 versus the flooding we have right now in Pakistan. One of the things we spoke about, Samriz, was how there's much less response now. And so what is your thinking around a radical shift reducing not, a, not the livelihoods of aid workers, but the ability to actually get assistance out to people affected by crisis? That, that seems to me to be a harder price to pay. I mean, that's a difficult question to answer because, of course, here you're talking about saving human lives, right? Um, and we've seen, I think, one of the biggest, I think, changes that I've seen, or not a change, it existed in the 2010 floods as well, and it exists in, in today as well, is how much our own people have were galvanized to come out and help. Right? I mean, Pakistan is one of those countries when we have a massive, massive natural disaster, that's when our people actually come out and help. We saw it in the 2005 earthquake, the 2010 floods, and we're seeing it again now. 
So forget the government. It was our own people on the ground, people who may not have any humanitarian experience, but completely galvanized. And trying to get into those remote cutoff locations uh, to, to bring in as much help as they can to their people, right? I think using that as a springboard, one needs, one can use that and say, so there is hope. There is a new foundation here that has existed for decades, even centuries maybe, that we have an ethos of assistance, uh, both monetary as well as technical, as well as knowledge-based that exists in our countries. We just don't allow it to develop and we fall back on these global mechanisms and systems that are so cut off and isolated from the real world. But if we allow these systems, I mean, I don't want to use the word local for lack of a better term, these are the, the systems and the organizations that have a very, very homegrown ethos. And a lot of them even refuse foreign aid Yet they are able to galvanize and mobilize communities and resources to help where help and, and take it where it is the most needed. So I think we have a roadmap. We already have examples that exist. And I, I'm sure every country in the world has, has a roadmap like this that exists. Our challenge is to let that roadmap develop. And for me, that is where the assistance will come from. Having said that, a case of the flooding that we have seen this year is far, far too enormous for that sort of a system to uh, assist at this point in time. So we definitely need international aid and help. Like we just cannot do it without that. But then there should be there should be a bifurcation in terms of you know where the international system should step in and how it should step in. I think there needs to be a lot more soul searching and a lot more um, I think management of those scenarios as opposed to saying, no, they are only the experts and they are only the ones who can come in when needed. Nobody else and everybody should sing to their, their tune. So I think that's the approach we need to take. And I think ultimately that's where North and South will meet eventually. At least I hope so. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, but that's the way I see it. We need to have that homegrown ethos, those homegrown organizations managed and run by homegrown uh, individuals and citizens and groups, and then know when everybody else needs to come in and where and to what extent. You know, it makes a lot of sense, Tamis. Uh, I think the key question is obviously how do we engineer that interface? How do we engineer that nexus without reproducing the dominance uh, from the North that we have today. Mabala, what, what's your thinking on this issue? Yeah, so I think I'm coming in from a bit of a different angle because I, I haven't worked with like emergency and disaster you know, responses. So I think that that's different. And I think what Timriz has said, I resonate with. I, I, I speak more towards other development projects where I think you know, lo countries locally can, can devise what that looks like. But even back to the, as as you both were speaking, I was just thinking, if these homegrown organizations aren't allowed to grow because we're always depending on this aid, this is the problem. We're just so dependent on on assistance from outside, we don't have the time to actually grow and, and improve our own system. So I think, again, it, it has to be managed in a way that we can also grow ourselves independent of of the West, again, that depends on the on the on the crisis and the magnitude of it, as we see now in Pakistan, help is needed. So that's you know there's different cases, but 
But I think there is room for that nexus to be better managed and for people on the ground to have better control and power as to how how aid is given and when, and when it stops and how it's managed. You know, we shouldn't just be having our arms open just to receive everything that comes our way. We should say, no, we don't want this. Or yes, we want this. Yeah. More agency. You have spoken quite a bit about how this monolithic way of talking about the global south or the global north or, you know, the way we like to put each other into really big boxes and 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 sort of maneuver in that way, how, how that is not a good way to work. Tamriz, you've been talking about how you need to actually almost construct the language in a specific context in order to, to you know, deconstruct the power in it, in a sense. And I think my question is to, to both of you, you are you're women from the global south, from different continents, but you also both studied in Canada. You actually started, studied in the same town in Ottawa. And in a sense, maybe you're both part of what we could call the transcultural elite. You fly around the world, you do development projects. What What is your thinking on your, how do you guys fit into the picture? What is your thinking on identity? And and if you're not just in the big global south box, which box are you in, if any? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really going to answer the question, I think. But one thing that came to me... Um, when you were speaking that just came into my gut was just the privilege of that right and so i think it's a privilege to even ha- be able to have these these discussions right of of creating change and someone i spoke to just told me not to be scared of that like even though you're aware of your privilege how do you use it so for me because i mean we're discussing how to change the system and if, if someone has a good job and is benefiting from it why should they change that you know what i mean like i feel like it's a very privileged thing to say like oh let's just dismantle everything And so I think I'm learning to own that and still know where my role is, you know, and and what I can do to bring about that change with that privilege. And so, uh, yeah, so so going to Canada and and what that, you know, afforded me. And actually, I also wrote a blog post about leaving Canada and why I thought, you know, all all Africans actually was like, should come back home, you know, brain drain and all that. But again, that's also a privileged thing, like, coming back home means many things for different people. And so I'm aware of that. And this is why I think we all have our own, you know, cross to carry and all that. So I haven't really answered your question, but I've said something. I so. think you have. Okay. Something, I so. think you have. Okay. Right. Yeah. So Reese, what's your reflection on, on what Mabala said and on your own thinking around your identity? Identity has been a very, um, I think it's been very front and center for the last few years as well. My identity has primarily been as a Pakistani and a very privileged Pakistani because I come from a middle-class background in this country. So I have seen privileges. I've been to private schools. I've been able to study abroad. I've worked in some of the biggest, you know, organizations in this country. So I think my privilege within my own country is the first level of identity that I have to uh, accept that I am way, way better off than majority of my own country uh, citizens. And then having to traverse even beyond that, when I moved to Canada, and part three of my blog is my about my life and development in Canada, is basically an eye-opener that you've got yet another level of identity to deal with as having traversed both you know, two different parts of the world and two different continents and two different cultures. But I think that's what made me realize what belonging and identity for me really is. It also really helped me decide 
exactly where my role is, like Mabala, you said. And my role is very much global self-centered. I mean, I may have an administrative identity of the global north as well, but I am through and through global south. So I don't think I am as conflicted as a lot of other people like myself are. I truly believe that no matter where in the world I am, I will always be uh, a representative and a member of the Global South because that's what shaped me my entire life. Had I moved to another country much younger in my life, maybe it would have shaped me differently. But because I moved to another country, you know, when I was in my 40s, my identity was already pretty much decided. But privilege is also where I am in the Global South as well. So I think that's, that's a different layer that um, one needs to contend with in terms of who one is. Yeah, I think I agree with the the way Timur's put it about her identity being in the global south. I think for, it's the same for me. So even if I've lived, you know, many places, I think my heart still beats for that. Like that, that will always be the end goal of developing the global south or of Uganda or of my continent. So that's, that's like my anchor. So yes, I've been influenced by all these other things, but my anchor is and will always be that. Throughout this conversation, your focus has very much been on deconstructing the concepts, the business models, the institutions that reproduce inequality or that reproduce colonialism, if you want. Now, you are both quite fiercely independent in the way of thinking and in the way you position yourself. So I'd like to ask you as the last question, for you personally, what are the what are the top three things on your mind in terms of, of creating the change you want to see? Let's take Mabala first. I mean, the, the top three things is, I, I think now is just independence. So when I, when independence, I mean, again, back to this point of working outside the system, um, and finding ways to just completely change how that works and working with people who think that think in the same way. So for me, it's being outside the system. We've already discussed this. And it's radical as well. I think we need to be fearless and we need to be comfortable with being radical. I think, again, when Timmy's was saying about like adapting, that's not good enough, right? People are slowly changing things. I mentioned how, you know, you have more local staff being hired in projects and all that, but that's just... Uh, that's just a cover. There's no real change happening. So for me, it has to be radical. So independence, radical. Um, and the last one, I think, I'll just is, is community, is finding people who you can actually work with, people who actually resonate with your ideas um, and are willing to, to be independent and radical with you. So it's community and finding people who can be think, think the same way and want to do the work uh, with you in the same way. Yeah, I mean, well, the first two are spot on. Uh, completely agree with Mabala. My first would also be independence, and I would extend that to not just individuals moving out of the system, but I think organizations, communities, and countries also thinking independently about moving out of whatever system controls them. Absolutely radical. Uh, you need to be radical if you want to see the type of change you are talking about because I think a lot of people don't realize what they're talking about is radical as well. They just don't want to use that word. So absolutely, uh, we are at a point um, in our global history where we are, I think, as a, as a world, as a globe falling apart 
right? So if you're not radical now, I don't know when you'll be. I don't think you'll have another chance. Absolutely. My third one would be, um, how to put it? It would be, it would be gathering knowledge, I think. I think we've already got a lot of knowledge from, you know, obvious sources, but there is so much knowledge still out there that we don't know about ourselves and about our own communities and our own societies. And I think that is what will shape our own thoughts, opinions, uh, and ideas moving forward. So I think the idea of, of knowledge gathering is key. Local knowledge gathering, indigenous knowledge gathering is key in us trying to figure out our own roles and our own identities and our own way forward. Tim Rees and Mabala, thank you for coming on Trumanitarian. It's been fantastic to have not one, but two heroes on the show. I admire your dedication, your energy, and your relentlessness. And I look forward to seeing the fireworks you'll create in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lars and Mabala. It was, it was uh, an honor to, to share the stage with you. Thank you, Tim Rees. It, really, it was really insightful to hear, and I'm looking forward to reading more and seeing what you're doing as well. And I hope we can stay in touch. Likewise, likewise. And all the best for trying to move out of the system, if that's what you want.
It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>